นโมตัสสะบะกะวะโตอะระโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบะกะวะโตอะระโตปะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบะกะวะโตอะระโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะปารุตตเตสังขปัตตาสะดวารายโสตวันโตปมัญชันตุสะดานเต very good so uh, for this week we're going to continue looking at some verses from the Theragatha and uh, as we did last week uh, I'm going to look more or less randomly And uh, <clears throat> just kind of look through it and find things that uh, seem a bit interesting, or uh, either characteristic or interesting, or whatever. Um, and one of the things that I want to try to represent here, I'm not, I'm not trying to give a sort of complete or full interpretation of the, the text and these kinds of things. But I, I mean, one of the interesting things about this collection, in particular, is that it preserves what seems to me, in some cases, to be very highly distinctive and very personal voices. Uh, that we hear from the monks, and that's something that you don't get so much in in uh, a lot of the prose suttas. In some places, you do in the prose suttas, um, but uh, the tendency is for the the ancient Buddhist text to be quite formalized and quite standardized. So that the uh, you know, if Sariputta is speaking, he sounds pretty much like the Buddha, or or you know, everyone sort of sort of pretty much standardized. And here we have a more of a just. Feeling of different different people, different individuals, with their quite different takes on the Dhamma and what's important for them. We've had a special request for some verses from uh, Talaputta, uh, so I'll read some of his um, verses a bit later on. It's towards the end, and meanwhile we'll just begin with a few other uh, semi-random ones. Here's the first in the group of the fives. I, a monk, went to a charnel ground. Uh, this is Rajadatta. I uh, went to a charnel ground and saw a woman left there, discarded in a cemetery, full of worms that devoured her. Some men were disgusted, seeing her dead and rotten. But sexual desire arose in me. I was as if blind to her oozing body. <laughs> right now, you thought that you were sick and disgusting and perverted. <laughs> I don't know about full of worms and oozing and things, but I certainly have uh, monks have said that they've been to see, you know, going to do the kind of corpse contemplations and so on. And if 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 you go and see, you know, an autopsy or something like that, and then the if the corpses aren't actually oozing and putrid and so on, then uh, you know they can be quite attractive. <laughs> That's what I've been told. It's not my personal experience. I think. Anyway, moving right along, I won't name any names there. Okay. Uh, quicker than the boiling of rice, I left that place. Mindful and aware, I sat down to one side. Then the realization came upon me. The danger became clear, and I was firmly repulsed. My mind was liberated. See the excellence of the Dhamma. I've attained the three knowledges and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. Okay, next one, Subhuta. Okay, this is uh, so that one. You know, it's the story of uh, the monk in his own. Uh, practice. Right? So the next one is is more of a uh, uh, rather than being a talk, a personal talk about the practice, is a some uh, ethical advice, moral moral advice in a verse form from Subhuta. If a person wishing for a certain outcome applies themselves to a misguided endeavor and they don't achieve what they practiced for, they say that's a sign of my bad luck. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Still true today. When a misfortune has been plucked out and conquered, to give it give it up in part would be like the losing throw of the dice. 
But to give up everything would be as if one was blind, not discerning the even and the uneven. Right? So when you, you see sort of bad things, you recognize it, but you don't give it up, right? So that's, that's like, that's, uh, how dumb could you be, right? Because that's what we do, right? You recognize that you've got bad habits and bad tendencies, and you still hold them up. But then to give up everything would be to, as if one was blind, not discerning the even and the uneven, right? So not discerning what's right and wrong. You should only say what you would do. You shouldn't say what you wouldn't do. And that's actually what we use as our, our guidelines for the Sangha meetings, uh-huh. right? <laughs> if you say something, then you've got to do it. The wise will recognize one who talks without doing. Actually, we should recite that verse at the beginning of the Sangha meetings. It would be good. Yeah. Just like a glorious flower that is colorful but lacks fragrance, so is well-spoken speech fruitless for one not acting in accordance. Just like a glorious flower is both colourful and fragrant, so is well-spoken speech fruitful for one who acts in accordance. Okay, so this is an interesting one. We have a series of verses from the Kasapas, Nadi Kasapa and Gaya Kasapa. Of course, these were some of the ascetics who were converted by the Buddha at the time of the third discourse, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, the fire sermon. And uh, which one of the suttas were reciting this range retreat, and it's quite an interesting account. If you read the account in the in the Kandakas, uh, of course, it's very entertaining and quite humorous, right? And so the Buddha's going around doing all of these psychic powers and so on, and the and then the the head of the Kasapa brothers like, oh yeah, he's really impressive, but he's not an arahant like me, and uh, so he's. Uh, a little bit kind of slapstick and so on there, and then sort of accounts of kinds of psychic powers you don't find elsewhere. So, you know, like going up to Uttarakuru to get his arms and things like that. It's not the kind of thing that the Buddha normally did. Um, but one of the interesting things about that, that account also is that, you know, it's obviously a very dramatic moment. It's a very significant moment in the uh, development of the sasana, and yet we hardly hear about these monks afterwards, right? A thousand bhikkhus was ordained, and these, these you know, obviously... If you're leading groups of hundreds of uh, ascetics, you must be quite prominent and quite a good leader and so on, and yet we hear nothing of them in the Sangha afterwards except for these few verses. So uh, it's interesting why that's the case. I don't have any answers, but just noticing it. So this is Nadi Kasapa, the Kasapa of the river, who was one of their three brothers. It was truly for my benefit that the Buddha went to the river Neranjara. When I heard his teaching, I rejected wrong view. Previously, I performed the higher and lower sacrifices. I worshipped the sacred flame, thinking, this is purity. I was a blind, unenlightened person. Caught in the thicket of wrong view, deluded by misapprehension, thinking impurity was purity. I was blind and ignorant. I've abandoned wrong view. Rebirth into any state of existence is torn apart. I worship what is truly worthy of offerings. I bow to the Tathagata. I've abandoned all delusion, Rebirth into any state of existence is torn apart. Transmigration through births is finished. Now there is no more rebirth into any state of existence. Panta, is this the same thing which is beside the one in the Dhammachaka at the end? Ah, the same phrase. Uh, It's similar. Yeah, nati dani puna bhavo. Now now there's no more rebirth. Yeah. So it's normally translated, translated as nati dani puna bhava, literally something like now there is no more existence. So did they, they use same kind of same verses, same similar things that they used in the sutras as well? 
in, in a few cases, that, that's actually a fairly rare case, um, that there's a, there's a standard phrase that you find as a stock phrase in the suttas, which is used almost exactly the same way in the verses. That's actually quite unusual. Uh, must be because it's sort of fit, fit, fit in with the meter. Um, usually, like in the... Um, uh, in the Terra and Terigata, you find phrases, for example, it says "tiso uh, vija anupata," like I've, I've attained to the, or, uh, I've attained to the, the three knowledges, or I've realised the three knowledges, uh, and so that's not expressed in the same way in the suttas. Yeah, it's, it's the same meaning, but not, not phrased the same way. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So it's not just the meter is different at all, but. No, even the wording is all different. The wording is is completely different, and in some cases, uh, it's usually the the syntax and so on is different. Occasionally, you find uh, things like say uh, uh, things that are always in the same sequence in the prose suttas might be in a different sequence in the verses, uh, or sometimes uh, synonyms might be substituted for each other. Uh, so you know it might always be like one particular word for something. So for example, one example that comes to mind is the word for um, for touches, like things things that you touch in the suttas is always potaba, um, but in the in the verses it sometimes in the in the prose it's always potaba, and in the verses it sometimes uses pasa uh, to mean touches. Yeah. So you always have to be um, be aware of that when you. When you're reading it, yeah. <clears throat> so, and here's the verses of his brother, Gaya Kasapa. Three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, I went down into the river at Gaya for the Gaya Spring Festival. Whatever bad things I've done in previous births, I'll now wash away right here. This was the view I previously held. So this is kind of reference to a like a, a physical interpretation of karma, right? So you've done these 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 things. So he did believe in in karma and rebirth, but so physically you could wash them away. And and one of the things which which we see this is kind of in the Buddha's time is like a pivotal moment in history where um, this conception of, of Suffering or, or sin or wrong or whatever is 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 becoming clearly identified as a psychological thing rather than just a physical thing. Now, in the Jaina tradition, uh, it's Jaina tradition. It's still a bit more physical. Karma is felt is felt to be like a kind of particle rather than just being intention. Uh, and in the Brahmanical tradition, as in here, there's a very strong idea that it's like a physical thing that you can wash off with water. Uh, in some of the Jatakas, it actually has stories where one of the services, one of the rituals which the Brahmins would perform for rich people or kings or something would be that they do a ritual where the king or the, the rich man would lie down on a bed right, and the Brahmin would lie underneath them. Okay? And then the, the, they would bring water and mutter the sacred words and then pour the water over the king and then wash the water down onto the Brahmin underneath. So the Brahmin would be receiving the sins the bad karma of the king or the uh, lord or whatever, and uh, they would say they'll bear it as well. Yeah? So this is idea of a scapegoat. Yeah? And uh, so, uh, so when the Buddha, that's a very important historical context to notice because when, when, when the Buddha comes along and says, it's intention that I say is karma, he's saying it in that context. He's saying to these people, what you're taking as karma is this physical thing. It's not actually a physical thing, right? It's something that happens in your mind. It's what you intend to do. Right? That's the point of that, that saying. 
Why isn't it called a scape priest rather than a scapegoat? <laughs> well, scapegoat, because often it is a goat. Yeah. It's a very widespread practice. And then it just it became known as a goat because in, in I think in more of the Western cultures they often did use a goat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean in the in the Bible of course it's Lamb of God, take away our sins. Oh, yeah. In the Old Testament. Yeah, in the Old Testament. Used a goat. Yeah. So and that's what they would do, and it's quite a do- it's actually a documented practice that they would do like once a year or something. The villagers would get together and then they sort of ritually will put all their uh, sins on the goat and then drive the goat out into the desert or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Do back, yeah. Um, I think it's still like many Hindus hold this view as well. Like, okay. You know, like some of they say, like some of the holy men, they take people's sin away. Oh, they still do that, do they? How, how do they? What kind of rituals do they do to do that? Uh, I don't know. They say, like, you know, when that holy man sort of promises that you really take your sin, you know, if you're a devotee, mm. so they will take your sort of sin. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And of course, they're still washing the Ganges and so on. Yeah, despite they, the they, they still believe. Yeah. They still believe like you can wash away your sins. Yeah. <laughs> That's why Ganges is so messy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to have a lot of faith. What can I say? Yeah. The Christians are also doing it with their baptism and. Right, it's, it's from it's and, a and Jesus yeah. is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins yep. of the world. So, yep. very, very much so. Yeah. So you know, within Christianity, you know, you see, and within the the Hebrew tradition, you see a kind of progression. Like in the oldest times, is human sacrifice. Right, so it's the person, the human being, who takes away those sins. Right, and so that's the story of Abraham, where the human is actually sacrif- replaced with a goat. Yeah, so it moves from so it's it's being made more humane. It's not human sacrifice anymore. It's animal sacrifice. And then later on, of course, animal sacrifice gets left left aside. And so from the time of Jesus, then it becomes just uh, symbolic sacrifice. But Jesus is back to human sacrifice. Well, he's back to human sacrifice. He was in kind of exception, but then you know after that, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny how he was a kind of lazy creed. You know, like. You know, they just want to do anything, and then you know somebody else can deal my sins. Yeah. You know, like. You know, Jesus did it for me, so I'm That's right. kind of right. So it's like, you know, it used to be that people, had, you, you know, if you did something bad, you had to go to pilgrimage in, in, mm. in, in Europe. Right. But the rich people, they were kind of clever, so they sent somebody else to do the, yeah, the yeah. travel, <laughs> walking around. And like, they did the sin, you know, like... <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the king can lie there, and then somebody else takes the sins for him. Yeah, yeah. Kind of easy way to do it. You don't have to be good yourself. But it's an interesting psychology because even though you know we can think, oh, you know, we understand these things, but actually, you know, if you look at it, for example, what happens if you don't bathe, right? And you wear like dirty clothes and stuff like that, and you come out and you mix with a group of people, you feel bad, don't you? You feel like there's something kind of wrong with you, or if you you meet somebody who's kind of smelly and doesn't bathe and is wearing dirty clothes, and then you you sort of there's something morally wrong with somebody who's not physically clean. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. James, we can give our merit to others. Why? Uh Why can't we give our bed? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that question was asked in the uh, Melinda Panha. 
And there's a very nice the answer given in the Melinda Panha is a very nice answer. I don't, I'm not quite sure it's correct or not, but it's a very nice one. It says the reason why you can share your merit but you can't share the evil is because merit is something wonderful and vast and abundant, and evil is something small and nasty, and and and, and, and trivial, and so you can't share evil because it's not big enough. <laughs> merit is merit is is abundant. It multiplies itself. Yeah. I'm not sure if I agree with that, but it's a nice sentiment. I mean, with with merit, it's not going away. I mean, right. you're saying what you've done, and mm. someone rejoices in that, yeah. and that's what sharing merit yeah. is. Yeah. So if I do that with something bad, I still have it. You get more of it, right? Yeah. It's not. You get more of it, yeah. Well, right. Yeah. If you if you think, oh, my, 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 may somebody else have my bad karma, you get the bad karma, and you also have the bad karma of giving it to someone else, right? <laughs> it's not really transferring. Sure. Yeah. 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 The whole idea of transferring merit is is somewhat dubious. I have to admit. Yeah. Anyway, moving along. One, one more thing, Matthew. Yeah. Before we move on, there. Sometimes we do these rituals and. Uh, Northern Ireland with the lay people wash our hands, that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. That's some kind of yeah, well, it's the same thing. literature, it's some kind of, some sure, kind of yeah. idea. Sure, yeah. yeah. idea, the hand washing yeah. and. Uh, what about yeah. bathing the Buddha? What's that all about? Uh, yeah, same thing. Who are you, who's washing who for what reason? Uh, what, what's actually going on there? Yeah, well, yeah, it's just, just a random ritual. Yeah, though. you get a bathing <laughs> ritual in there somehow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, so here's um, Sapadasa. Sapadasa, what does Sapadasa mean? The slave of a snake? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, um, in the 25 years since I went forth, this is a reassuring one for all of those who are struggling with their meditation. In the 25 years since I went forth, I have not found peace of mind even for as long as a finger snap. (laughs) Since I couldn't make my mind unified, I was tormented by sexual desire. Wailing with outstretched arms, I burst out of my dwelling. (laughs) You think you've got it bad, right? Should I, uh, or should I take the knife? What's the point of living? Rejecting the training, how should one like me come to an end? Then I picked up a razor and sat on a bench. The razor was ready to cut my vein. Then the realization came upon me. The danger became clear. I was firmly repulsed. My mind was liberated to see the excellence of the Dhamma. I've attained the three knowledges and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating because they all all have a kind of similar structure. You're kind of desperate or there's some Mm. kind of defilement going on there. Before they know it, they have not only have they attained samadhi and mm. stream entry, they have the three knowledges, right? It's kind of yeah. <laughs> everything kind of happens. So how how are we supposed to understand this? Are we supposed to understand this as a kind of a contraction of what actually happened, or are we supposed to understand that he, he then got, got to samadhi and then the rest of the path kind of happened as a consequence? Or yeah. What exactly are we supposed to how, well, how we understand uh, this? Uh, just sort of discussing with Venerable Sambodhi earlier in in the um, Anuruddha's verses, it, it mentions that he what was it? The years now thirty years. Thirty years. He basically he said he's, he ha- he's been doing sitters practice, so he hasn't laid down for for fifty five years, and then twenty five years since he's he's ended drowsiness, so probably became enlightened. So that means he was practicing for thirty years. That's Anuruddha. Yeah. So my, my I suspect that in most of these cases, you know, you the the, the uh, time frame is 
yeah. is 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 compressed. Oh, yeah. yeah, I hope anyway. It looks better that in some cases um, there is a long time before uh, for, for accumulation of. Um, Uh, conditions for enlightenment yeah. like a long time like even in the case of uh, the son of the Buddha 13 years yeah. and uh, just before he became enlightened the Buddha realized that he was ready yeah, yeah. but he was not stream entry yet right mm. and he gave him teaching and he obtained everything in within short time mm. so it seems like uh, in many cases it's first accumulation of conditions mm. and when one is mature mm. everything happens quickly mm. And 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 that, and that whole process is much more unpredictable, you know. I mean, again, in, in the suttas, it often seems, you know, it's a kind of laid out. You have the gradual training, and you do this and this and this, and it's all quite nice. Whereas in the Taragata, it's like, yeah, you're never quite sure when enlightenment's going to leap out at you. Yeah. Once yeah. we've got instances of like children becoming enlightened as well, like some of the novels. One or two, yeah, yeah. So they're not practicing for 30 years with samadhi. Well, that's true. Yeah. Some sort of. You know, maybe previous conditions going on there that led up to that. Dumba, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, the case of Dumba is, is only found in the uh, origin story to the Munasangasesa rules, I, I think. So, and, uh, Isn't it in here as well? Is it in there as well? I think. But where, uh, well, that's where it says that he's seven years old, Dumba. Dumba uh-huh. Manabuka. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. 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 Okay, yeah. 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 I think that's And Sumana. Sumana. Sumana, wow, okay. Yeah, it is in Taragata also, Taragata. Sumana, yeah. Sumana's verses, I think. Yeah. That no one knows me. Okay, no one knows me. Yeah. So here's the verses of a, a certain Katyana. There's a Katyana or Kachayana, there's a few of them. It's not always sure exactly who the verses are from. But anyway, uh, first line, get up Katyana and sit. Don't sleep too much, be wakeful. Don't be lazy and let the kinsman of the heedless, the king of death, catch you in his trap. Um, so this was the, the first line. Did I mention this last week? I was talking about it. The first line was the one that, that was a good example of where uh, um, K.R. Norman's translation kind of missed the point of it because he didn't. He's not a meditator, but the, the Pali is is utaha um, nisida or something like that. Literally, stand up, sit up, something like that. And K.R. Norman saying, "Well, you can't tell somebody to stand and sit at the same time. It doesn't make sense." Right, so then he sort of got this kind of convoluted explanation of what he thought it must mean, but of course, if you're a meditator, it's obvious what it means, right? It's talking about wakefulness and not sleeping too much and so on. So that's what it means: is get up and sit, like a wave in the mighty ocean. Birth and old age overwhelm you. Make a safe island of yourself, for you have no other shelter. The teacher has mastered this path, which transcends ties and the fear of birth and old age. Be heedful all the time and devote yourself to dedicated practice. Be free of your former bonds, wearing outer robe with shaven head, eating alms food. Don't delight in play or sleep. Devote yourself to jhana katyana. Practice jhana and conquer katyana. You are skilled in the path to security from the yoke. Attaining unexcelled purity, you'll be quenched like a flame by water. A lamp with feeble flames is bent down by the wind like a creeper. Just so, kinsman of Indra, you shake off Mara without grasping, free of lust for feelings, await your time here, cooled. Okay, so uh, this one is an exhortation to Katyana, rather than being by him. Um, 
Just a, a couple of points here. When the line "you'll be quenched like a flame by water," actually, K. R. Norman uses "quenched" as a uh, rendering of nibbana or nibbuta. Um, and here, obviously, you can see the the metaphor, right? Quenching a flame with water. And uh, I mean, the 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 sort of there's etymological discussions about what nibbana actually means and so on from an etymological point of view. But in certainly in the poetry, you find this kind of imagery is constantly used in the context of talking about nibbana and attaining nibbana. You know, it definitely means the quenching of a flame. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean unbinding. Um, you know, imagine that you try to translate that, you'll be unbound like a flame by water. I don't know what that could possibly mean. Um, but, you know, it's very obvious in the poetry that the actual metaphor that it's talking about is the, the quenching of a flame. What was the, the kinsman of the Indra? What did, was that? Ah, the kinsman of Indra. Um, yeah, okay, so that's just a... a um, a, an idiom that's used in this particular one. A lamp with feeble flames is bent down by the wind like a creeper. creeper. Just so, kinsman of Indra, you shake off Mara without grasping. Free of lust for feelings, await your time here called. So I'm, I'm guessing it must be um, like the Buddha was called Aditya Bandhu, as a kinsman of the sun. Uh, and the, the reason for that, I mean, obviously it's, a, it's, it's an epithet, but also his royal family was said to be descended from the, the solar lineage. So, like, they actually felt to be literally the descendants of the sun, right? Um, in the in the in the Indian mythology. Um, so, I'm thinking that probably because Katyana is a Brahmanical family name, so he's probably felt to be a, a kinsman of Indra for that reason. Oh, he's talking about himself. It's it's, it's talking to him. Yeah, he's been he's been he's addressed to Katyana. Yeah. Could it also? You know, it's just this way of saying when you're you're a powerful, powerful person. You know, going to strive has sure. a more metaphorical sense. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously invoking that, right? Because it's Indra versus Mara, yeah. so he's invoking that. But I imagine he's probably using it because he's a Brahmin. Mm. I would guess. Yeah. So it's good that you translated the um, the Jayati is ja- doing jhanas. Uh-huh, you know, yeah. previous translations of. Just said meditate on monk and stuff like that. I yeah. Didn't really specifically mentioned Jana. Muse, oh monk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's one word which I don't think we really have a word for in English. Um, possibly absorption might work. But uh, yeah. Purohita putta jenta. Okay, so Genta, the son of the, um, what, how do you translate, Purohita, priest? Priest. Like a high priest. High priest, something like that. Uh, I was intoxicated with the pride of birth and wealth and sovereignty. I lived intoxicated with the beauty and form of my body. No one was my equal or my better, or so I thought. I was such an arrogant fool, stuck up, waving my own flag. I didn't pay respects to anyone, not my mother or father, nor others considered to be honourable. I was stiff with conceit and disrespectful. When I saw the supreme leader, the most excellent of charioteers, shining like the sun and revered by the monastic sangha, I discarded conceit and intoxication, and with a clear and confident heart, I bowed down with my head to the highest of all beings. The conceit of superiority and the conceit of inferiority have been abandoned and uprooted. 
The conceit I am has been eradicated and every kind of conceit has been destroyed. So, uh, I I mean, again, this is is kind of addressing this kind of personal thing rather than, you know, uh, know, when the Buddha presented things, you'd often point, well, you know, there's the ten fetters or these different kinds of defilements and so on which we have. But when you look at the individual practice of different people, uh, you know, often it's like one specific thing, right, which is the, 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 the real thing which they were struggling with. Uh, so in the case of that Brahman, it was his uh, conceit. Uh, perhaps these days we'd, we'd diagnose him with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, and <laughs> so that becomes his avenue. But, that's, you know, but that, 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 the, 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 the useful thing is it shows you that, that through, through addressing that, through really looking at that, that's actually how he got enlightened, right? So if you look at all of your, you know, your your main defilements, right? Don't think don't think of them as problems. You think, well, if, if this is how I get enlightened, right? By overcoming this. This is really if you've got really strong defilements, you're like, wow, that's good. The path is really clear, right? <laughs> I know what I have to do. If you're looking and you're thinking, oh, I can't see any defilements. It all looks pretty good, then it's probably a sign that something's gone wrong. Okay. Sumana, this is one of the cases we were just talking about. Sumana, I had just gone forth, I was seven years old, when I overcame the dragon, oh, overcome, should be overcame, uh, overcame the dragon king so mighty with my psychic powers. Right, so dragon king, the Nagaraja. Okay, so he's not just, you know, getting enlightened when he's seven years old, right? <laughs> mm. I went and I brought water for my mentor from the great lake, Anodatta. When he saw me, my teacher said this, so I'm, I'm translating upajaya as mentor rather than preceptor. My teacher said this, Sariputta, see this young boy coming, carrying a water pot, serene inside himself. His conduct inspires confidence. He is of lovely deportment. He is Anuruddha's novice, excelling in psychic powers. Made a thoroughbred by a thoroughbred, made good by the good, educated and trained by Anuruddha, who has completed his work. Having attained the highest peace and witnessed the unshakable, that novice Sumana wants no one to know about him. So some nice uh, verses about uh, dealing with anger. For one without anger, tamed, living calmly. This is Brahmadatta. Anger, tamed, living calmly liberated by right knowledge, at peace, poised, where would anger come from? One who gets angry at an angry person just makes things worse. One who doesn't get angry at an angry person wins a battle hard to win. When you know that the other is angry, you act for the good of both yourself and the other, if you are mindful and stay calm. Those who are unskilled in dharma consider one who heals both oneself and the other to be a fool. If anger rises in you, reflect on the simile of the saw. If craving for flavors arises in you, remember the simile of the sun's flesh. If your mind runs among sensual pleasures and rebirth in various states of existence, quickly curb it with mindfulness as one would curb a greedy cow eating corn. So just interesting there that it's referring to a couple of uh, well-known similes from the suttas. Uh, so uh, clearly, it was regarded as something that that those similes would be, you know, well known in the community. Okay, so here's some verses that I asked various monks for guidance on, and I'm still not satisfied. Uh, so this is the verse of Siri Manda, but these again are verses. First verse is one which is very well known. Actually, is found in the Vinaya uh, and in the Sutta on the eight 
great qualities of the Dhamma Vinaya. The rain saturates things that are covered up. It doesn't saturate things that are open. Therefore, you should cover up, you should open up a covered thing so the rain will not saturate it. So the Pali I'm translating as saturate here is ativasati, sometimes translated as it, it rains hard on a covered thing. Um, but I, I must admit I still don't get the metaphor. I don't understand. What does it mean? What do you mean it doesn't rain on things that aren't covered? It does rain. If you open them up, it still rains on them and they get wet. I've, I've thought about that verse. It's a mystery. It's a mystery? It's not a mystery. <sighs> yeah. Maybe it just rains through it. You know. Look, I, 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 I thought that meant it does, things go rotten, right? So, so if you if you keep things, you know, if you keep things closed up, then when they get damp, they go rotten. So, you, so yeah, they go mouldy. Yeah. So you have to open them up, and then then even if it rains on them, they don't go mouldy. That was my thought, but that's not actually what the verse says. Maybe it's to do with meditation. Well, it's 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 given in the context of the the, the eight marvelous qualities of the Dhammavinaya, which was a a the um, the scene the scene was the establishment of the Uposita and the Padimokkha, especially for the uh, I think it was the time when the Uposita when the Buddha set up the Uposita for the monks to only do it, and so they were doing the Uposita and there was an evil bad monk in the assembly, and uh, the Buddha sat there the whole night refusing to do the Padimokkha. And then eventually they had to um, grab this monk and by the arm and throw him out. I think Moggallana read his mind or something and they grabbed this monk out and threw him out. And uh, so then the, they gave these verses on the great qualities of the great eight qualities of the great ocean. And one of them being that the great ocean won't uh, tolerate a, a rotten corpse. It'll toss it up on the shore. So the same thing with the Sangha won't tolerate a rotten monk, but they'll, they'll kick them out. Uh, and so if you've done any bad deeds and so on for the opposite, then you should confess them and make them open and make them clear. So that's the kind of the background of the verse. Um, but So the, the meaning of it's clear enough, but I just don't quite catch the sense. Yeah. Uh, the rain saturates things that are covered up. It doesn't saturate things that are open. Therefore you should open up a covered thing so the rain will not saturate it. What is saturate exactly? I don't know. Make it full of water. Yeah. Oh, okay. water well, it usually covers like a roof. I think it's the opposite of what you're saying. I think, I think it's like if you expose yourself, yeah. then what comes at you will be a, be a purifying thing, whereas if you cover it, then you'll get burnt by the, by the externals of it. If you protect it and make yeah. it kind of a... Um, if you hold back and, and yeah. be honest about things, for example, in, the, in, the, in relation to the petty worker, yeah. if you have an offence and you hold back and don't purify that, yeah. then it will, you'll get wet, like you'll, you'll be exposed to things. Whereas if you somehow if you open up, even if, it rain, even if it rains, you'll still be okay. Things will be okay. That's the only way I can make sense of it in relation to the petty worker. So it's not going to rain on you if you... So if you take the roof off your kuti, it's not going to rain on it? Well, even if it rains, it won't saturate. <laughs> I know, I feel pretty saturated. Mr. Conceit, let me 
good one. Covering him is like to conceal it or not it's to be honest about things and conceal yeah, it and kind of yeah, hiding things. Yeah. So, but if you open up, it, it might rain, but the rain doesn't affect you anymore, perhaps. But that's not okay. The rain might affect you, but it's not quite. Well, it's close enough. Close enough. I think it's the metaphor For sure. Yeah, I'm just. I'm just not sure how it could be construed. Anyway. Anyway. Look. Anyone that wants to suggest a way of rewriting it or reconstruing it, I'm most happy to listen to it. Yeah. So um, it goes on. The world is crushed by death, surrounded by old age, struck by the dart of craving, and ever obscured by desire. The world is crushed by death, caged by old age, beaten constantly without respite, like a thief being flogged. Three things are coming like a wall of flame, death, disease, and old age. No power can stand before them, and there is no speed to flee. Don't waste your day, a little or a lot. Every night that passes shortens your life by that much. Walking or standing, sitting or lying down, your final night draws near. You have no time to be heedless. Which one's that? <laughs> Siri Munda. Is that a number? 6.13. 6.13. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a name for you, Jamie? That's good. That's a name for you. Siri Munda. Siri Munda. Good Siri Munda, wasn't it? The, the, uh, Siri Munda, yeah. Siri. Splendor Munda. Was Munda? Is that cream or something like that? Splint creams, maybe. Splendor, Munda, Munda, isn't Munda a fool? It also means cream, doesn't it? Munda. Is that retroflex? This is retroflex. The supreme. Yes, I think Munda is often used as a metaphorical thing for something which is the best. Uh-huh. It can be the best splendor or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Cream or splendor. Okay, so this is the verses of uh, La Gundaka Bhadia. Uh, so this is Bhadia the dwarf, uh, and so this is an interesting one in the context of uh, Buddhism and Buddhist attitudes towards disabilities. Um, his verse is also found in the uh, uh, Bhikkhu Sangyutta. Bhadia is plucked out, craving root and all, and in a jungle thicket on the far side of Ambatika Park, he practices jhana. He is truly well favoured. Some delight in drums, some in lutes and in cymbals, but here at the foot of a tree, I delight in the Buddha's teaching. If the Buddha were to grant me one wish and I were to get what I wish for, I'd choose for the whole world, be always mindful of the body. Those who judge me by my appearance and those who followed me because of my voice, they're under the sway of desire and lust. They don't know me. He was supposed to have had a um, a very sweet voice. So he was very ugly appearance, but a very sweet voice. Um, so, and he's saying, you know, if you judge me on either of those things, you don't really know what I am. Not knowing what's inside, not seeing what's outside, the fool uh, obstructed all around is carried away by my voice. Not knowing what's inside, but discerning what's outside, they too, seeing only the external fruits of practice, are carried away by my voice. Understanding what's inside and discerning what's outside, they, seeing without obstacles, are not carried away by my voice. Okay, and so here's some um, the, uh, uh, the I guess the songs of enlightenment, which is very characteristic of the Theravada. When a wise person fully understands that old age and death, to which an ignorant, unawakened person is bound, are suffering, and they are mindful, practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. 
when attachment, the carrier of suffering, and craving, the carrying of the, the carrier, the suffering of this mass of proliferation, are destroyed, and they are mindful practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. When the blissful eightfold way, the supreme path, cleanser of all stains, is seen with wisdom, and they are mindful practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. When one develops that peaceful state, sorrowless, stainless, unconditioned, cleanser of all stains, and the cutter of fetters and bonds, there is no greater pleasure than this. When the thundercloud rumbles in the sky and the rain falls in torrents on the path of birds everywhere, and a monk has gone to a mountain cave practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. When sitting on a riverbank covered in flowers, garlanded with many-colored forest plants, one is truly happy practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. When it is midnight in a lonely forest and the sky rains and the lions roar and a monk has gone to a mountain cave practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. When one's own thoughts have stopped meditating between two mountains sheltered inside a cleft without stress or heartlessness practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. When one is happy, destroyer of stains, heartlessness and sorrow, without obstructions, entanglements and darts, and with all defilements annihilated, practicing jhana, there is no greater pleasure than this. Then we have the uh, well-known, famous story of uh, Chula Pantaka. My progress was, sn- was slow. I was despised in the past. My brother turned me away, saying, go home now. Turned away at the gate of the Sangha's monastery, I stood there sadly, longing for the teaching. The Blessed One came and touched my head. Taking me by the arm, he brought me into the Sangha's monastery. The teacher, out of compassion, gave me a foot-wiping cloth, saying, Focus your awareness exclusively on this clean cloth. After I had listened to his words, I dwelt delighting in his teaching, practicing samadhi for the attainment of the highest goal. I know my past life. My divine eye is clarified. I've attained the three knowledges and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. I, Pantika, created a thousand images of myself and sat in the delightful mango grove until the time for the meal offering was announced. Then the teacher sent to me a messenger to announce the time. When the time was announced, I flew to him through the air. I paid homage to the teacher's feet and sat to one side. When he knew I was seated, the teacher received the offering. Recipient of gifts from the whole world, receiver of sacrifices, fielder of merit for, the, for humanity, he received the offering. So, uh, of course, the story was that he was so dumb that he couldn't even memorize one little verse and uh, became a great arahant. Okay, so here's another um, a uh, Kappa's verses. Filled with different kinds of dirt, a great producer of dung, like a stagnant cesspool, a great boil, a great wound, full of pus and blood, sunk in a toilet pit, trickling with fluids, this putrid body always oozes. Bound by sixty tendons, coated with a fleshy coating, clothed in a jacket of skin, this putrid body is worthless. Held together by a skeleton of bones and bound by sinews, it assumes postures due to a complex of many things. We set out in the certainty of death, in the presence of the king of death, and having discarded the body right here, a person goes where he likes. 
Enveloped by ignorance, tied by the four ties, this body is sinking in the flood, caught in the net of underlying tendencies. Yoked with five hindrances, afflicted by thought, accompanied by the root of craving, hidden by delusion. So the body goes on, propelled by the mechanism of deeds. But existence ends in perishing. Separated, the body perishes. There's an interesting idiom here. I'm not sure if that's the right way to translate. Propelled by the mechanism of deeds. The, the Pali is kama yanta. Where yanta usually means like a machine or an engine or something like that. But what yanta actually means in the time of the Buddha is not entirely clear. Perhaps it should be, because it's talking about being propelled, perhaps it should be propelled by the engine of deeds. Y- yantra. Y- yeah, Pali yanta, yeah. Yanta is the present participle of yanta to go, isn't it? Just going. Right. Just going, yeah. yeah. Kama yanta, yeah. 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 But yeah, it's, it's the. And, and related to yana, I think. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah, so. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure what the connotations of yanta are for the time of the Buddha. I know in later times it definitely meant like an engine. Yeah. What do you think the five precepts would have said at the end of the five precepts again? Yeah. Sila, Sugatin, Yanti, is that? Yeah. In that sense, it's just to go Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yatra, yes, yes, dhamma yatra, yes, is probably from the same root, yeah, journey, yeah, yeah, yep. Um, those blind, unawakened people who think of their body as theirs swell the horrors of the charnel ground and take up rebirth again in some state of existence. They, those who avoid this body, like a snake smeared with dung, they expel the root of rebirth and realize nibbana. Without defilements. Okay, so uh, so next one is a nice. This is Wanganta uh, Putta Upasena, and uh, here is uh, instructions on how to do a retreat for monastics. So that's useful. In order to go on retreat, a monk should stay in lodgings that are secluded and quiet, frequented by beasts of prey. <laughs> right. No Sorry. No lions. Yeah, kangaroos don't quite count, do they? Uh, Maybe you have to go up north where there's crocodiles or something, I don't know. Having gathered scraps from rubbish heaps, cemeteries and streets, and making an outer robe from them, he should wear that coarse robe. When uh, one of my students, when I was at Santi, Tapasi, he he sort of had this kind of project of, of making himself a robe from scraps of things uh, found all because he like really liked nice things, so he thought, oh, he'd just make a make a real rag robe. And so whenever we'd travel anywhere, he'd keep an eye out and find like a rag that is like lying in the gutter or in the bushes or something like that. And he could have collected them all and uh, cleaned them and so on. He never never got the robe finished. He disrobed beforehand. Anyway, <laughs> humbling the mind, a monk should walk for arms from family to family without exception, with sense doors gardened, well well restrained. He should be content even with coarse food, not hoping for lots of flavors. A mind that's greedy for flavors doesn't delight in jhana. With few wishes, content, a sage should leave secluded, socializing with neither householders nor the homeless. He should appear to be stupid or dumb. 
A wise person would not speak overly long in the midst of the Sangha. He would not insult anyone and would avoid causing harm. Restrained in accordance with the Padimokha, he would eat in moderation. Skilled in the arising of thought, he would grasp well the character of the mind. He would be devoted to practicing serenity and insight at the right time. Though endowed with energy and perseverance and always devoted to meditation, a wise person would not be too sure of themselves until they've attained the end of suffering. For a monk who dwells in this way, longing for purification, all his defilements wither away and he attains nibbana. Very lovely instructions for how to do a retreat, isn't it? And... uh, one of the things that always strikes me, I mean, in here and and in the early texts in general, is that there's they're not so much concerned with like you know details of meditation techniques and things like that. It's much more emphasis on actually living in the right way, having the right mental attitude, um, uh, is the most important thing. So we're now into the uh, longer sections. We're up to the fourteens, uh, and in these longer ones, uh, the the uh, uh, structure of them is a bit more variable. We find uh, repetition of a lot of these stock verses more often, and we find um, in some cases that there's like one coherent set of verses that someone's giving at a certain time. Um, but more and more as they get longer, uh, it seems that there's like you know sets of different numbers of verses. Sometimes just one, uh, sometimes a few. Um, which maybe were said at different times or different, quite different kinds of things, but they've all been included in one set. And it's not, it's not always entirely clear uh, how they should be grouped together. Uh, of course, in the commentaries, it'll tell you which ones were ta- taught at which particular time and which ones belong together and so on. And usually they're, they're fairly reasonable, but it's not always entirely clear um, which sets of verses belong together. <coughs> so... Here's another one. We just did the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. So let's read the verses of uh, Anyasi Gondanya. Anya Gondanya. Again, another kind of curious thing, like like the fire ascetics, that after we hear about him at the um, in the Dhammachaka, you never really hear about him uh, later on. I think there's one or two references in the suttas, but uh, certainly didn't play a major role. In fact, the same thing not only applies to him, but all of the five ascetics and all of Yasa and all his mates and everybody who basically converted up to and including the, the fire-worshipping ascetics. And it's not really until you get um, Sariputra and Moggallana coming and ordaining uh, that you actually start to get the uh, more familiar characters that we're used to encountering in the suttas. I don't know, maybe they just you know stayed quietly and meditated and stuff and they just didn't, didn't pay too much of a... Role in the Sangha. But anyway, so, but these, we do have something, and so these verses from the Teragata are just about all we have from Anyasi Kondanya um, from the early text, apart from the Dhammachaka. My confidence grew as I heard the Dhamma so full of flavor. Dispassion was the Dhamma that was taught without any grasping at all. There are many pretty things in the circle of this earth. They disturb one's thoughts, I believe. Beautiful, provoking lust. Just as a rain cloud would settle the dust blown up by the wind, so thoughts settle down when seen with understanding. All conditions are impermanent. When this is seen with understanding, one turns away from suffering. This is the path to purity. All conditions are suffering. When this is seen with understanding, one turns away from suffering. This is the path to purity. All phenomena are not self. When this is seen with suffering, one turns away from suffering. Sorry, when this is seen with understanding, one turns away from suffering. This is the path to purity. So, of course, these three verses are very famous. They occur in a number of places. 
such as the um, just after the Buddha's enlightenment. The senior monk Kondanya, who was awakened right after the Buddha, is keenly energetic. He has abandoned birth and death and has perfected the spiritual life. There are floods, snares and strong posts and mountain hard to crack, snapping the posts and snares, breaking the mountain so hard to crack, crossing over to the far shore. One practicing jhana is freed from Mara's bonds. A haughty and fickle monk, relying on bad friends, sinks down in the great flood overcome by a wave. But one who is humble and stable, controlled, with senses restrained, wise, with good friends, would put an end to suffering. With knobbly knees, thin, with veins matted on his skin, eating and drinking in moderation, this person's spirit is undaunted, pestered by gadflies and mosquitoes in the awesome wilderness. One should mindfully endure like an elephant at the head of the battle. I don't long for death. I don't long for life. I await my time like a worker waiting for their wages. I don't long for death. I don't long for life. I await my time aware and mindful. I've attended on the Buddha and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. The heavy burden is laid down. I've undone the attachment to being reborn in any state of existence. I've attained the goal for the sake of which I went forth from home life into homelessness. What use do I have for students? So there's an interesting kind of twist right at the end there, isn't there? He hasn't brought up that theme beforehand. Maybe that's why we never heard of him, right? Yeah? So this is, that's the only clue that we've got, why we've never heard of I, I read somewhere that uh, Anya Kundanya spent the uh, uh, rest of his life in forests alone. And yeah. he didn't teach, but I don't know where this come, comes from. And, and you have to assume, basically, that's, that line is, is where that comes from, really. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in some traditions, in the Molasarasi Vada Vinaya, he was said to have shown up at the first council. Yeah, it actually gives like the order, the seating order of the terrors at the first council, right? And you know, Anyasa Kundanya was was seated at number one. And then when they started the recitation, and Ananda started by reciting the Dhamma Chakra, then he was so overwhelmed he fell down in a dead faint right there. So I was there when that discourse was spoken, and now the Buddha's passed away. Oh, I can't stand it. The, the, the Arahants in the Sarvastivadan tradition are much more emotional than the Theravadan Arahants. <laughs> okay, so this is an interesting one. This is verses of Adimutta. Uh, and this is one of the few that has a, um, it has a very slight narrative structure uh, to it. So it just begins uh, with some verses which you find out later. Uh, it's not identified at the beginning, but these are verses spoken by a group of bandits uh, who've uh, captured or come across these, this monk, uh, and they're addressing him. Those that we previously killed, whether for sacrifice or for wealth, without exception were afraid. They trembled and squealed. But you aren't frightened. Your appearance is becoming more calm. Why don't you cry out in such a fearful situation? And then the monk replies, Arimutta, there isn't any mental suffering for one without expectations, village chief. So he refers to this person, Garmini, uh, as a village chief. So I don't know what kind of village it was. They were waylaying people on the side of the road. But anyway, all fears are left behind by one whose fetters are ended. When attachment to life is ended in this very life as it is, there is no fear of death. It's just like laying down a burden. I've lived the spiritual life well and developed the path well too. 
I have no fear of death. It's just like the ending of sickness. I've lived the spiritual life well and developed the path well too. I've seen lives I've seen lives seem to be ungratifying, like one who has drunk poison, then vomited it out. I've seen lives seem to be ungratifying. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Like one who's drunk poison and then vomited it out. One who's gone beyond without grasping, their duty completed, without defilements. They are content at the end of life, just like one freed from execution. Having realized the Supreme Dharma, without needing anything from the whole world, one doesn't grieve at death. It's just like escaping from a burning house. Whatever has come to pass, wherever life is obtained, that one, that, sorry, the previous verse, in, without leaving, needing anything from the whole world, it reminds me of uh, uh, something I read recently. Uh, it was said of, um, uh, was his name Joseph Heller, I think, the author of Catch-22. And uh, he wrote this book, which was incredibly successful. And, but then apparently sometime later he was at a party with all these business people. And uh, he said, and, one, and somebody said to him, "You know, you think you're you're so good, you but you you know you're a very popular author. But see that guy over there, he's he made more money last week than than uh, you'll make in your entire career." And uh, Joseph Heller replied, "Well, there's there's one thing that I'll have that he'll never have." And he said, "What's that?" He said, "Enough." <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, whoever. Uh, Whoever understands this, as it was taught by the Buddha, doesn't take hold of any kind of life. It's just like grabbing a hot iron ball. It doesn't occur to me I had past lives, nor does it occur to me I will have future lives. All conditions will disappear. Why lament for that? Seeing in accordance with reality the bare arising of phenomena and the bare continuity of conditions, there is no fear, village chief. The world is like grass and wood. When this is seen with understanding, not finding anything to be mine, thinking it isn't mine, one doesn't grieve. I'm fed up with the body. I don't need another life. This body will be broken up. There won't be another. Do what you want with my corpse. I won't be angry or attached on that account. When they heard these words, so astonishing that they gave them goosebumps, the young men laid down their swords and said this, What have you practiced, Venerable? Or who is your teacher? Whose instructions do we follow to gain the deathless state? All-knowing, all-seeing, the conqueror is my teacher. He is a teacher of great compassion, healer of the whole world. He taught this Dhamma which leads to the end, unsurpassed. Following his instructions, you can gain the sorrowless state. When the bandits heard the good words of the sage, they laid down their swords and weapons. Some refrained from their deeds, while others chose the going forth. When they had gone forth in the teaching of the fortunate one, they developed the factors of awakening and the spiritual powers and being wise with joyful hearts, happy, their spiritual faculties complete, they realized the state of Nibbana, the unconditioned. Interesting, isn't it? It seems to be almost like you have a... They are bandits in a sense, but they seem to be spiritual seekers at the same time. So they're actually doing the banditry or doing the killing for, for spiritual purposes. Then when somebody actually comes along and actually has the, has the real goods and they see the goods... It's easy for them to. Is that, is that what's happening? Why there? do you say they're doing it for spiritual? Well, purposes? they were saying before we, we slaughter people for merit or for that kind of thing. I think that's what he's saying at the beginning, wasn't it? He said, "He said we we sacrificed them." Yeah, yeah exactly. We sacrificed them. I got the yeah. impression that everyone was doing it for for kind of a purpose, for almost like a religious purpose. Oh, look, it's it's India. I wouldn't be surprised. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> the point. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> Those we have previously killed, whether for sacrifice or for wealth. It was like well, if you right. Yeah. 
So yes, they may well have been doing it against right? I presume it's Yanya was the sacrifice, which would be for right, would be for one's prosperity, like a sacrifice. Yeah. So it's fascinating that idea because you are actually not doing it out of you know they're doing it for almost like the right reason, the killing. That's all they need to do is to they need to understand that it's actually the wrong path. It is the wrong path, but because they are literally seekers, all they have to do is that this understanding this is the wrong path. There is another path, and they can actually swap over. And it actually seems to, seems to work. So the right way of doing human sacrifice. <laughs> there's, there's a lovely if you if you read the um, book um, Karmanita, which is a, a wonderful novel set in the time of the Buddha. But uh, uh, there's a whole chapter in there where he gets lost among the the troop of bandits. And uh, yes, they they actually this group of bandits they're kind of thugs who waylay people and kill them and stuff like that. But they also have their own resident philosopher. So at night time, he gives them kind of lessons in bandit philosophy. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's got quite sophisticated inside. So it's a very lovely uh, chapter in that book. But that's true. I mean, in, in India, there's a god of everyone, you know, and, and it's not by no means uh, unprecedented. I mean, that's what they were. I mean, you, you, even in modern times, you had the thuggies, of course, which is where we get the word thug from. And yeah, they would be the same thing. They'd be like Kali devotees or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, definitely they'd have a... Uh, a spiritual dimension to what they were doing. Right. In, in, in 19th century, there was a sect of robbers uh, who were uh, similar like this. They had a ritual way of strrangling of, uh, of their victims. Right. It was kind of religious, uh, yeah. religious so way of robbery in India. British times. They removed them. They stopped them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this was a sect of, of uh, in, uh, robbers. In Sikkim, yeah. also in Bhutan, they do a lot of uh, poisoning, actually, in there. They have believed that they, they get the merits of the person that they've poisoned. So they often wait till there's a rich person or even a high monk that comes and then they poison them and then they really? offend the blues and they can kind of make this offering to the poison god they call it and they kind of Cranky. they get the merits from that. Careful when you go to see Does it work? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, so I'll just do one, one more. Um, this is the uh, Talaputta. And uh, um, Talaputta was, I believe, a actor or something like that? Actor, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's why you asked for the Talaputta's verses. Yeah, entourage of 500 <laughs> ladies. <laughs> so what kind of performances were they doing? I think it was like a traveling troupe. Of traveling troupe of dancers or something yeah, like that. Dancers, performers, yeah. Talaputta. Oh, when will I stay in a mountain cave alone with no companion, discerning all states of existence as impermanent? This hope of mine, when will it be? Oh, when will I stay happily in the forest, a sage wearing a torn robe, dressed in ochre, unselfish, without desire, with greed, hatred and delusion destroyed? Oh, when will I stay alone in the wood, fearless, discerning this body as impermanent, a nest of death and disease, oppressed by death and old age? When will it be? Oh, when will I live, having grasped the sharp sword of wisdom and cut the creeper of craving that tangles round everything, the mother of fear, the bringer of suffering? When will it be? Oh, when will I, seated on the lion's throne, swiftly grasp the sword of the sages, forged by wisdom of fiery might, and swiftly break Mara and his army? When will it be? Oh, when will I be seen striving in the assemblies by those who are virtuous, poised, respecting the Dhamma, seeing things as they are, 
with faculties subdued. When will it be? Oh, when will I focus on my own goal, on Giribhaja mountain, free of oppression by laziness, hunger, thirst, wind, heat, insects and reptiles? When will it be? Oh, when will I have samadhi and mindfulness and with understanding attain the four noble truths that were realized by the great sage and are so very hard to see? When will it be? Oh, when will I, devoted to tranquility, see with understanding the infinite sight, sound, smell, taste, touches and mental phenomena as burning? When will it be? When will I not be downcast because of criticism nor elated because of praise? When will it be? When will I discern the aggregates and the infinite varieties of phenomena, both internal and external, as no more than wood, grass and creepers? When will it be? That's also an, an allusion to a, a simile we find in the suttas, I think in the Kanda Sangyuta, and says you should see just uh, like when they take the rubbish out of the jetta grow, they come and they clean it up and they take the, the weeds and the sticks and things like that, and they take it out. You don't think that they're taking me out or whatever. Uh, so it's just you think this is just this, these phenomena. So you can see the sort of character of these verses, right? This kind of longing. The Buddha called this niramisa domanasa, yeah? the, the spiritual depression. Yeah, and sitting there, oh, and and you know, there's the kind of you're sort of starting to get that that you know you're move, moving away a little bit from that that um, brevity and simplicity that's very characteristic of the early suttas, right? And they're sort of over and over the same thing, and 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 if you look in the Pali, you find that often with this verse, um, verses, uh, not only do you find more elaborate uses of metaphors, um, but also the the, the, the poetic construction is more sophisticated. You don't you, you you have like like often in the Pali that phrases are repeated verbatim all the time, uh, whereas in these verses you find that they're repeated with slight variations. Uh, so these kind of repeated phrases, when will it be, and so on, might be adjusted slightly to fit the meter and so on. So it's a it's a, slight, it's a more sophisticated approach to the the poetry. Um, when will oh when will the winter clouds rain freshly as I wear my robe in the forest, walking the path trodden by the sages? Oh, when will I rise up intent on attaining the deathless, hearing in the mountain cave the cry of the crested peacock in the forest? When will it be? Oh, when will I cross the Ganges, Yamuna and Sarasvati rivers, the Patala country and the dangerous Balavamukha sea by psychic power without hindrance? When will it be? A particular verse is uh, extremely dubious to, uh, and difficult to translate, uh, especially what the Patala country is. We don't really know whether it's even a country. And Balava Mukha, uh, in the commentaries, it's kind of sometimes said to be a, um, um, a mouth of hell. So he's, he's flying across the mouth of hell, but Norman preferred to interpret them all as being like just ordinary physical places. Um, so... The mukha, meaning like the opening, like a, um, yeah. uh, not sorry, mouth. but yeah, but that's right. Mukha is a mouth, but if it's a sea, it would be a what would you call it? A uh, estuary, something like that. Yeah, mouth of the river. Yeah. When will I be devoted to jhana, rejecting entirely the signs of beauty, splitting apart desire for sensual pleasures like an elephant that wanders without ties? When will it be? Oh, when will I? And so, so, just again, just to notice these things. Um, again, you're kind of there's a word I'm not, I can't remember the exact verb, but I've translated it as splitting apart desire. It's probably padalita, something like that. Um, and so this, that that kind of 
um, term, which you can translate it as just destroying sensual desires or ending sense pleasure, desire for sensual pleasures and so on. But the way that he's using it here, it sort of it it um, it connects with the next verse, the next line, where he's talking about like like an elephant that wanders without ties, right? So you have to sort of translate it in a way that can perhaps like bursting apart desire or something like an like an elephant that's bursting its its ties. When will I realize the teaching of the great sage and be content like a poor person in debt harassed by creditors who finds a hidden treasure? When will it be? Okay, so this, that, that ends that kind of sequence of verses. It moves to now a, a diff, slightly different mood of verses. For many years you begged me enough of living in a house for you. Why do you not urge me on mind now that I've gone forth as an ascetic? Mm-hmm. Didn't you? Be- so it seems like this is at a later time. So right, all of those verses may be referring to the time when he was a layman, and he was kind of longing, "Oh, when can I? When can I ordain?" And now he's ordained, and he's like, "Well, didn't you beg me mind on Giri Budger, The birds with colourful wings greeting the thunder. Mahinda's voice will delight you as you practice jhana in in the forest." In my family circle, friends, loved ones and relations and in the world, sports and play and sensual pleasures, all of these I have abandoned for the sake of this. And even then, you're not content with me, mind. So he's referring to his mind in the third person. This is mine alone. It doesn't belong to others. When is it time to don your armor? Sorry, when when it is time to don your armor, why lament? Reflecting that all this is unstable, I went forth longing for the deathless state. The methodical teacher, supreme among people, great physician, charioteer of tractable people, said the mind sways like a monkey, so it's very hard to control if you're not free of lust. Sensual pleasures are diverse, sweet, delightful. Ignorant, unenlightened people are attached to them, seeking to be reborn in another state of existence. They wish for suffering. Led on by their mind, they're relegated to hell. Staying in the grove, resounding with cries of peacocks and herons and liked by, by, uh, liked by leopards and tigers, abandoned concern for the body without fail. So you used to urge me, mind. Develop the jhanas and spiritual faculties, the powers, factors of awakening and samadhi meditation. Realize the three knowledges and the teaching of the Buddha. So you used to urge me, mind. This is one of the things which I think is really, um, you know, it's a perspective you don't really get uh, so clearly put in, the, in, in elsewhere. But I think it's one which is very human and very relatable. You know, we've all, I think, been there. You know, you sort of had that feeling, that idealized notion of what the holy life is like, Right. It's going to be so lovely and it'll be in nature and you're meditating and it'll be so simple. And then when you get there, oh. Develop the Eightfold Path for realizing the deathless, emancipating, plunging into the end of all suffering and cleansing all defilements. So you used to urge me, mind. Properly reflect on the aggregates of suffering and abandon that from which suffering arises. Make an end of suffering in this very life. So you used to urge me, mind. Properly discern that impermanence is suffering, that emptiness is non-self and that misery is death. Uproot the wandering mind. So you used to urge me, mind. Bald, unsightly, accursed, 
Seek alms among families, bowl in hand. Devote yourself to the word of the Buddha, the word of the teacher, the great sage. So you used to urge me, mind. Wander the streets well restrained with your mind unattached to families and sensual pleasures like the full moon when the night is clear. So you used to urge me, mind. Be a wilderness dweller and an alms eater, one who lives in charnel grounds, a rag robe wearer, one who never lies down, always delighting in ascetic practices. So you used to urge me, mind. Mind, when you urge me towards the impermanent and the unstable, you're acting just like a person who plants trees. Then, when they're about to fruit, wishes to cut down the very same trees. You incorporeal mind, far traveller, lone wanderer, I won't do your bidding any more. Since your pleasures are suffering, painful and very dangerous, I'll wander with my mind focused only on Nibbana. I didn't renounce due to bad luck or shamelessness, not because of a whim, nor banishment, nor for the sake of a livelihood. It was because I agreed to the promise you made, mind. Having few wishes, abandoning disparagement, stilling suffering, these are praised by good people. So you used to urge me, mind, but now you continue with your old habits. Craving, ignorance, the loved and unloved, pretty sights, pleasant feelings, and the delightful kinds of sensual pleasure, I vomited them all. And I can't swallow back what I've vomited up. Right? So again here, you find in the, in the verses sometimes uh, the word vomity is like literally to vomit, right? It's the same, same, same root as the English, so vomity. And, and so normally you might translate it as, you know, I've rejected sensual pleasures or I've, you know, I've put away sensual pleasures or something like that. But, but when it's in the verse like this, you, you have to translate it literally, right? You can, it's vomited and I can't swallow them back again. I've done your bidding everywhere, mind. For many births, I haven't done anything to upset you. Yet you show your gratitude by producing craving inside yourself. For a long time, I've transmigrated in the suffering you've created. Only you, mind, make us holy men. You make us lords or, or royal sages. Sometimes we become traders or workers. Life as a god is also on account of you. You alone make us titans. Because of you, we are born in hell. Then sometimes we become animals. Life as a ghost is also on account of you. Can you can you use the word titan? Is that something people understand? Asuras. Asuras, yeah. I mean, that's what they are in Greek mythology. It's basically the same thing. Come what may, you won't betray me again. Dazzling me with your ever-changing display, you play with me like I'm mad. But how have I ever failed you, mind? In the past, my mind wandered how it wished, where it liked, as it pleased. Now I'll carefully guide it as a rutting elephant is guided by a trainer with a hook. That must be like a really powerful imagery. I mean, we don't know much about elephant training and stuff like that, but the elephant is like this huge, incredibly powerful, wild, scary thing, you know? And even a rutting elephant, right? You, you can be trained. If, if a trainer knows how to do it, just with a hook, then they can keep it under control. The teacher willed that this world appeared to me as impermanent, unstable, insubstantial. Mind, let me leap into the conqueror's teaching, carry me over the great flood, so very hard to cross. So in this particular verse is referring to um, a, a psychic vision which the Buddha conjured up uh, to, to show, to demonstrate impermanence uh, to, um, to uh, Talaputta. Things have changed, mind. Nothing could make me return to your control. I've gone forth in the teaching of the great sage. Those like me don't come to ruin. Mountains, 
oceans, rivers, the earth, the four directions, the intermediate directions, below and in the sky, the three states of existence are all impermanent and troubled. Where can you go to find happiness, mind? This is another um, idiom you find in the verses quite frequently. You don't find in the prose that the bhava, the three bhavas, so I've translated as three states of existence. Sort of in the in the prose text, it'll refer to them: the the karma bhava, the sense sphere existence. Rupa bhava is the um, uh, uh, form or, or a corporeal existence, and arupa incorporeal or formless existence. Um, but uh, it's sort of referred to in a more brief way in the verses as just the di bhava, the three three bhavas. Basically, you're referring to the um, jhana existence as, as corporeal existence. Right, yeah, form. Does it work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, jhana doesn't seem to be very corporeal. I, it kind of seems to be almost the opposite. No, incorporeal works, though, for formless. Yeah, I believe, yeah, that, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm traumatized by the translation of Rupa. It keeps me up at night. At least it means something, even if it's wrong. That's something that you told me. You have to translate it to mean something. At least someone can disagree with it. Interesting, interesting, just on this question, we asked Bhikkhu Bodhi this question uh, yesterday about the different... um, uh, states of existence in the in the Indian cosmology, and we sort of noted that there's a uh, there seems to be a difference in the suttas. There's there's like two aspects, like even in the Dhammachaka we just recited. So say in the, when it talks about the four noble truths, it talks about yayang tanha pono bhavika that that craving that leads to future rebirths. Right? And uh, when in the in the doctrinal and the philosophical passages, it just mentions it in a in a kind of general way. Right? It's it's quite it's just a, a, a uh, a, a, a kind of straightforward statement, but then at the end of it, and then it goes to the Chatu Maharadika Deva Sadhmanusa Vesung. You know, the four the gods of the four great kings uh, let forth a mighty roar, which carried up to the Brahma realm. And you you're introducing all of these aspects of the Indian cosmology and so on. And so we asked um, Bhikkhu Bodhi what um, you know how literally we're meant to be taken taking these things, and you know he agreed that there does seem to be this uh, distinction. Uh, it's not a hundred percent, but generally speaking, that in the actual teachings of the Buddha, that these realms are most of the time uh, spoken about in a general way, and the actual the details of the Indian cosmology are usually as part of the narrative or extra material rather than the core part of the teaching itself. Uh, and he said, you know, that that that, that uh, uh, he, he referred to this division of the three co- three, fine, ki- three kinds of bhava, uh, saying that. Uh, you know, it makes sense to him that there would be the the rebirth in these different kinds of realms, and the sense sphere realm for somebody who's dominated by sensual desires, or the rupa bhava for somebody who's attained jhanas or something, a rupa for the formless. So that that kind of makes sense. But uh, whether there's actually you know different levels all named these names with with you know gods called saka in them and so on and so forth according to the cosmology, whether they're all meant to be taken literally is much less certain. Okay, um, mind, what will you do to someone who's made the ultimate commitment? Nothing could make me a follower under your control, mind. There's no way you'd touch a bellows with the mouth open at each end, let alone the body flowing with its nine streams. You've ascended the mountain peak full of nature's beauties frequented by boars and antelopes, a grove sprinkled with fresh water in the rainy season, and there you'll be happy in your cave home. 
peacocks with beautiful necks and crests, colorful tail feathers and wings, crying out at the sweet-sounding thunder. They'll delight you as you practice jhana in the forest. When the sky has rained down and the grass is four inches high and the grove is full of flowers like a cloud in the mountain cleft, like the fork of a tree, I'll lie. It'll be as soft as cotton buds. I'll act as a master does. Let whatever I get be enough for me. I'll make you as supple as a good worker makes a catskin bag. I'll act as a master does, and let whatever I get be enough for me. I'll control you with my energy as a trainer controls a rutting elephant with a hook. Now that you're well tamed and reliable, I can use you like a trainer uses a straight running horse to practice the safe path cultivated by those who take care of their minds. I shall strongly fasten you to a meditation subject as an elephant is tied to a post with a firm rope. You'll be well guarded by me, well developed by mindfulness and unattached to rebirth in all states of existence. You'll use understanding to cut the follower of the wrong path, restrain them by practice and settle them on the right path. And when you've seen the cause of suffering arise and pass away, you'll be an heir to the greatest teacher. Under the sway of the four distortions, mind, you led me as if all around the world. And now you won't associate with the great sage of compassion, the cutter of fetters and bonds? So who knows what the four distortions are? Vipalasa. Vipalasa, yeah. For you, uh, permanent is, is permanent, impermanent, suffering is happiness, self is not self, and something is something. Something is something that is not. Super, super. Something is something that is not. <laughs> what is beautiful is ugly. Yeah, so there are four distortions of perception. Like a deer roaming free in the colourful forest, I'll ascend the lovely mountain wreathed in cloud and rejoice to be on that hill free of folk. There is no doubt you'll perish, mind. The men and women who live under your will and command, whatever pleasure they experience, they are ignorant and fall under Mara's control. Loving life, they're your disciples, mind. So these are the verses of Talaputta. So interesting in this in these verses, like you know, the mind is is almost like Mara, or or the sort of a simile for the defilements. So, any uh, questions? Anything? That's probably enough for now. I think that's enough for today. But uh, you had the samadhi meditation there, weren't you? You translated samadhi. Meditation. The word samadhi, the term samadhi meditation. I think it was probably samadhi bhavana, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Okay, I just want to get your opinion on something. Like when when I read the Tarot card, I want to read it. Past, it almost seems like the monks are talking directly to you, and I think that's kind of the intention with a lot of the, especially the, the, the longer verses. Yeah. And it's almost it feels kind of eerie. It feels almost like they're sort of reaching out and, and kind of touching you across mm. sort of thousands of years and kind of yeah. telling you how to practice. Yeah. But the, the emphasis seems to be on like seclusion energy, mindfulness. And like you said, it's almost like the mind is not an enemy, but like something to be very, very um, wary of, uh, lest it kind of pulls you away again. Mm. And there's this almost kind of intense beckoning to kind of get on with it and then to kind of get down to it. Sure, yeah. So what's your opinion of that in relation to like what the sun has become in terms of like a sedentary kind of lifestyle? People are very settled and... Mm. There's a lot more complications now in terms of our lifestyle and influences and things sure. like that. And it, it almost seems like it, it, it's, it's difficult to reconcile this kind of romantic idea of just going into the wilderness, dealing with tigers and getting on with it versus 
like what the summer is now and how to kind of traverse that, that distance? Oh, look, yes. What can I say? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think that 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 these these things and this kind of vision of the lifestyle is it's 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 there for me. It's a very powerful thing, you know. I mean, I've I've had the chance to actually practice in that way, you know. In Thailand, we stayed at Daodam, where you actually are just staying in the forest, and there's tigers and elephants, and <laughs> and it's beautiful, you know. But it's also quite hard. Uh, I mean. When we stayed there, we didn't ha- we didn't even have huts. So having a, having a hut makes it okay, um, you know. But if you're you know if you're young and your health is good and and so on, then it's a, it's a really lovely way to live. And certainly in Thailand and Sri Lanka, probably Burma as well, uh, you know, there's still quite a few places where you can live like that. Uh, it's it's getting harder, of course, to just have to live the kind of wandering lifestyle. And that's changed a lot since the, um, you know, since the founding of the forest tradition in Thailand. Uh, you know, in Ajahn Man's day, it was kind of wandering through the, the forest tracks, but now you're wandering along highways, and the only forest is actually what's left inside the forest monasteries most of the time. Uh, so yeah, there's more. Pe- I mean, there are, that's not always the case, but in a lot of Thailand, that's that's how it is. So uh, yeah. Like, uh, I wonder yeah. how, how instrumental is the, is the because you were saying it's almost like the, the lifestyle is more important than the meditation, mm. and like the way of living is is kind of the instrument. Absolutely, which you get awakening. Like mm. it's in the forest, it's secluded. Absolutely, it has a massive bearing on on kind of results. Yeah, but if that if that if that environment isn't there, or if it's very limited, yeah, um, like. You know, how do you take those principles, I guess, and apply them to what we have now? Is I guess my question. Yeah. Because it's all about kind of. There's a lot of. I mean, it's pretty blunt. Like what they're saying on the tarot guitar. Yeah. It's sure. almost like hitting you in the face with a bludgeon. Sort of. You know, it's talking about really intense <laughs> yeah. energy and and practice and sure. And it's and it's demonizing the body and demonizing central pleasure. It, it, it is. It is, and it is, and it isn't. Uh, I mean, there are other verses. I didn't read out all of them. For example, there's another. There's another set of verses where he's saying, you know, he's, he's talking about how delightful his body feels, and it feels like a tuft of uh, cotton, and so on. So, there's also an extremely positive emotional tone in the, in most of the Taragata. Yeah. So, I mean, there are these verses that focus on the negative side of things, but overall. You know, countless verses talking about you know how how blissful they feel, how how content they feel, and so on. So I think overall there's a very positive emotional tone. But yeah, it is it's challenging and it's meant to be challenging. It's raw, and I think that's the great thing about it. Yeah, and that's why it's uh, it's got that to me. It's got that spirit of authenticity. Yeah. And just on the same <coughs> on the same point, I I mean one of the the. Uh, Advices to see from the Buddha in the Sutta is, uh, is a famous advice to Pali, where the Pali goes to the Buddha and says, Can I please tell me very I want to go and live in solitude? And, says, yeah. Yeah. and the Buddha says, Well, you should wait, we're going to solitude until you, until you see the four jhanas in yourself. And, yeah. uh, uh, and then you can kind of, then you're ready for it. And then he says, Until then, you should live, live in the Sangha. Yeah. So I th- I, there seems to be like a broad range here of you know what it means to live in solitude. There is living absolute solitude, and there's living kind of in the forest monastery, and they're living kind of in a simple forest monastery, and they're living in a city, right. uh, and a whole range. But, but I think one of the and 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 the sangha has yeah. always lived in all those different ways has, since exactly. the time of the Buddha. Yeah. So it's about yeah. But what it seems to be surprising here is that many of these monks they may have had obviously had some samadhi, but they also seem to have quite a lot of defilements. It, it seems almost to contradict the advice that the Buddha gave to uh, uh-huh. partly in a sense because here they. Yeah, they are certainly 
I thought it was pure data it happens all the way no. through, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's true, yeah. I mean, some of them were, were going out there and struggling, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, yeah, I certainly don't think that it's the case that all of them would, would stay in a monastery until they had jhanas and then go out into the forest. Yeah. And it's, it's something that, that's, that's said a few times in the suttas, but um, maybe that's like an ideal rather than being something that everybody would do. I can't imagine they'd... You know, it's more advice rather than requirement, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of places where the Buddha also says that, you know, you, you are in danger of going mad if you, if you don't have samadhi while living in solitude. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, you know, you have those sorts of places. Yeah. Yeah. But there are also passages in the Anguttara where the Buddha is encouraging young monks to go into solitude straight away. And, and this pa- I remember this passage in the Anguttara where the Buddha is saying, you know, young monks should go into solitude. If it doesn't work out, then come back to the Sangha. So it seems like it's catered both ways, Pro- right. probably depending on the capabilities of season the person. Exactly, yeah. I mean, people are so different, yeah. yeah. So it seems like, you know, if there's an inclination to go into solitude and you think you can do it, that's probably the way to go rather than staying in Sangha. Personally, what I think it's good, my, my, you know, my, my, my own observation from my time as, as a monk is that. that it's it's rare, if not completely impossible, to find uh, somebody who who has not spent time in a sangha as a young monk, who has then gone on to really thrive later on. Uh, I'd, I'd be struggling to think of any examples of that. Um, having said which, people might stay for different amounts of time and so on, but but certainly at least for a few years to sort of get the basic training and so on. Um, and monks who don't do that usually. Uh, you find it's because they're too conceited or something like that. Um, uh, so, uh, but I, but I also think that it's good for you know if 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 you have that that interest or that aspiration and that capacity to then uh, explore that living in seclusion, you feel confident with it. I think it's a great thing to do. Yeah. I was more just a general question, but it seems like there's a, a kind of different tone, a very different tone. Maybe the ones who went into the forest were the poets. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, you know partly it's, it's it's the mode of expression. I mean, in the suttas, it also it often says you know eko vupakato apamato, you know, alone, withdrawn, secluded, ardent, resolute. So it's not it's not saying you know that they were you know delighting in the the cleft of Mount Giri Bhajja and while well, the spring flowers were sprouting all around them or whatever. But that's it's all the idea is there. But, but you know, maybe it is, it is also implied that they had spent some time in Sangha as well, and they had to have a kind of security there to be able to go and do that. Yeah, I would think in most cases. Yeah. And they had the Buddha also. Sorry? But they also had the Buddha uh, still alive, many of them had direct contact with the Buddha. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think that kind of gives you a boost on that. Gives you a bit of an edge, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I have a question also about the. Um, how, like, how. how how do they think that these verses were gathered? Because many of these monks yeah. seem to kind of also in the verse be saying like, oh, now I'm living alone in the woods and yeah. I don't talk to anybody. And Many of these verses give you the feeling that they're kind of riding off into the Nirvana sunset. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. So, so, you know. How, how do could, they get collected? Yeah, who, who did they say this to or how are these collected? Or, or were these also in the first council that, you know, how did these verses then become this collection because it seems so scattered? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're quite, quite, quite right. I mean, it, generally it's a collection, it's, it's a question for the whole canon, but you think we're quite right that these are more personal. 
Um, and uh, I, I can only guess that there must have been a, an impetus within the Sangha uh, to say, you know, let's, let's gather these things, right? Somebody must have been saying, look, let's, let's go out and try to, you know, there's all these monks have these different verses that they've made or so on, and let's try to bring them all together. Uh, and yes, it's traditionally said to have been assembled at the first council. There are obviously some verses that are a bit later, but uh, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't have been, you know, many of them shouldn't have been collected at the first council. Uh, I think I mentioned last week that uh, unfortunately we don't have any corresponding collections in the Chinese Agamas to the Terra Terigata. Um, that they're, they're referred to occasionally, so we know that there were corresponding collections in other traditions, but um, none of them have survived, unfortunately. Some of the verses have, but none, none of the, not the collections as a whole. And these were also then uh, orally, these were kind of recited then? Also? That's right, yeah. Uh, that alongside the... Orally recited for maybe three or four hundred years before they were written down. Yeah. Four hundred four, years, yeah, in the median chronology? Four hundred years. Three hundred years. <laughs> first century this year was when they were supposed to be written. <laughs> towards the end of the first century? Around <laughs> so uh, the, the middle, yeah. Yeah. Or even before, started before the middle, 60, 60 BC. Or was it? Okay. I mean, that, was, that was a full writing down, but many people argue it was started to be, being written down before that. Yeah. Thing, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so about 300 years, yeah. And uh, just one more thing, like often you were saying it talks in like the third person. Talk, he's talking to his mind in the third person, yeah. Yeah, like often throughout this, uh, there's this kind of format that it's almost like the person is being referred to through themselves, but I could imagine that almost, I could imagine that almost always it's the person talking to themselves. It's a bit, it's a bit hard to say, yeah. I mean, in Talaputta's case, obviously it's very distinctive. It's his voice and it's unmistakable, you know. Um, in some other cases, uh, it's unclear. Yes, it could be somebody's referring to themselves in third person um, or it could be a verse about them, yeah. Okay, very good. One last thing, like sorry, you saying very good there, but I'm sorry if you no, stop the very, good, very goodness. But uh, <laughs> uh, one of the one of the interesting things, obviously, with Talaputta, which yeah. is very unusual in the suttas, is this idea that the mind is destroyed at the end. Uh, uh-huh. Which is chitta will be perished. Yeah, perish, that is yeah. actually something you don't see very much in the suttas. You see it in a couple of places in the Anguttara Nikaya, where the uh, the monk is saying that you know I I'm watching while my mind is. Uh, uh, goes to vaya, vaya means basically to, to, to ending, basically. Right, yeah. right. And it's never said by the Buddha, it's always said by some, some disciples. Okay, okay. Why, why is it that this is so rare in the suttas? You, you see it in such a few places. This idea that the chitta is said to end. Mind, yeah, like consciousness comes to an end, it's not, yeah. it's not controversial at all. But yeah. the idea that mind comes in seems to be not, not, you don't hear it very often. My, my own interpretation would be because it's the, it's the way that it's the. the um, uh, the idiom that the terms are used on with respect to the Four, no- four Noble Truths, like, like uh, chitta is used quite broadly in a lot of different contexts, but when it's used in technical context, it tends to be used in the context of the Fourth Noble Truth. Right? You have chitta bhavana, chitta sampada, and so on, uh-huh. adi chitta sikar, and so on, whereas vijnana is used in the context of the First Noble Truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Ending suffering, Ending suffering, yeah. So the chitta is, is bhaveta bha, and vijnana is... Um, Okay. So I think it's more, that to me that's, and you, but you do see that crossover in a few cases, uh, like in the uh, Vibhanga for the Satipatthana, which is then quite interesting, where, where, where it, it says uh, what's the, the origin of the citta, yeah. and then it says Nama Rupa is the origin of the citta. Oh, yeah. 
So it's kind of crossing over with the use of vinyana and dependent origination. Yeah. Um, so it's not exclusive, but uh, I mean, that, yeah. But that, but to me, that is that that that, that would be the reason why it's more a matter of customary usage rather than uh, uh, anything more significant. Could could it also be that the that this almost like to challenge it for people to say, you know, your, your mind will come to an end? And, I mean, consciousness is more kind of an abstract quality. And it's kind of uh, I would say the opposite. Oh, I would say the opposite. I would say that that in the Indian context, if you look if you look in the Upanishads, it's the Vijnana which is said to be the infinite. The, the vinyana ganameva is, is the, the infinite ocean of consciousness, which is what, what your Atman will dissolve into, okay. yeah, much more so than chitta. Uh, chitta is a kind of an ordinary everyday word. Okay. I, think I would say it's the opposite, that vinyana is specifically invoked because that's, what, that's the infinite consciousness that the Brahmins were okay. saying, this is what's going to survive, okay. and the Buddha said, this is actually what's going to end. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Andamayang Damavadigataya Sadukarang Dadama Sadu 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 Anumodanam Sambudo Bhagava Buddhag Bhagavata Kabibade Bhagavato Sāvaka Sāngo Sāngha 